So everyone, welcome. This is Twin Shadows Podcast. This is uh we're gonna be jumping in real soon here. So I'll do a proper introduction. Welcome everyone to Twin Shadows Podcast, the podcast about film, filmmaking, and filmmakers. This is episode 112. Do re mi fa so la TSP. Hey, that's clever. Oh did you write that? Yes. I didn't see that. Did yeah. you see how I wanted to change the episode? Yeah, I corrected it. That's why it's called episode 112 instead of 113. So in this episode, we'll be discussing news, hot topics, not the store, and film scores. Mm. So, buddy, how was your week? Uh, Well, aside from the normal stress and anxiety and complete darkness, um, actually, I at some point, in time in my busy schedule, which has been extremely busy. Uh, I did work on scene six a lot and I made quite a bit of progress and I feel like I'm really finding the story that we wrote and catching in the delivery. And there's a lot of charm and I'm really kind of liking it. I'm liking it a lot, honestly. That's also why I wanted to tackle scene six because you were so frustrated and just so exhausted by it it seemed like you were i don't know it was just anxiety for you and just like pulling your teeth out i will say i'm very jaded with scene six i think that's a perfect word because the thing with scene six is it's massive Mm -hmm. it is there's it's probably the most shots we've done we did for a single scene it's probably like 56 something shots and it's uh pretty huge jumbled mess and i as i was editing and cutting those scenes and just looking at it it's just like there's so many different directions you can take yeah and then it's just like oh but you can also just like let the oneers play out yeah. and like they're ter- they're not great but at least the oneers are cohesive in tone yes. yeah um so it's kind of a cheap a cheap out uh if you want it like and if you're just being lazy and just wanted to get through that scene that's definitely how I felt was just like, oh, this is you can get a cheap out here because the tail end of scene six is, I think, is really easy and strong. All the, what do you, what's the tail end? Is that where Jennifer and Lexi conclude no. their conversation? Bo. Okay, because I would say what's really strong so far is when Kevin joins a mix because it's a classroom scene. And this is the for anyone who doesn't know, which is everyone, this is the introduction. Uh, if we're going with the edit we have now, this is literally the introduction to, to the characters. Yeah. And um, that scene is working pretty well. You described it perfectly when we were talking in private, how some friends of ours, they had an easier film to edit because they only had so many shots to select from. Where we have a million shots to select from and they're all bad. <laughs> And scene six has a ton of coverage uh, specifically within that section of it. There's not a ton of coverage before that, which was a nightmare. But now we're kind of in the second act of scene six. And there's a lot of coverage there. And it's actually getting really fun because I'm getting to play around. And what I'm doing is I have the master shots because what we did is we did a master shot, a few takes of the master. And then for some reason, we did this mid shot 
which is essentially the master shot, except slightly tighter. <laughs> and then we have like seven takes of that. And then we have the individual uh, tights of each character, which is there's um, four char- five characters in that shot. Six characters if you count the teacher. Well, I remember why that happened. I don't know if you remember why that happened. The mid-shot? Yeah. What's the mid-shot deal? The mid-shot deal? Um, so we were shooting the master and everyone started to complain because the the whole scene is like 18 pages of dialogue and we yeah. wanted to do the whole master in one take. Yeah. And so we just kept running through it. And then at one point, like the actors were like, this is fucking stupid. We're not doing this. And we were like, look, this is just the master. Can we get one solid take in a master? And then we're going to cut to everyone's tights. And then everyone was like, oh. Yeah. And that's when the original everyone, idea was just the one master. And yeah. then it was like, no one was happy with that. No one was happy with it. It was too long. It was too hard. And I'm, I mean, to be fair, it's we asked a lot for that scene. If it if it if like if it worked, like if we had like Philip Seymour Hoffman in there and, you know, yeah. Jennifer Jason Lee and some other actors like Jennifer Conley, Jennifer Conley. Yeah. If we had those characters, uh, those actors, like not saying that our actors weren't that good, but, you know, 18 pages of dialogue 18, is a lot. 18 pages of dialogue, like five characters, six characters speaking. Yeah. Unbeknownst to us. I mean, come on. It's all there on the page. What's so hard to remember? I will say this is <laughs> but, where yes. this is where the uh, the ignorance comes yes. in t- into our filmmaking aptitude for dickhead. Was where we were just like, eh, this is no big deal. And then that day proved to be like one of the most challenging days. Yeah. We worked. It was a lesson. We worked. um, That was like a 20 hour day, I think. Literally, we were up for like two days straight. 20 hours. That was was a 20 hour shoot day. Yeah. 20 hours of shooting nonstop. Steve and I worked nonstop that day. We didn't break for lunch. I mean, I remember they had Chipotle that day. I didn't even get anything. Steve and I just worked through it and just making sure that we had the angles and everything. And that was also including me setting up all the camera angles and the lighting, like placing markers on the ground uh, the day before. Yep. And it still took 20 hours. That's how massive this scene is. So just just to give a, a reference point of it, and so that's what I, that's what that mid thing that mid shot is. I remember it now clearly because everyone was so, complaining. So then why and upset. did we do it then? We just I think we just uh, we, we lied? reset up. We just reset up, and we probably just pushed in tighter. Yeah. So why? So it was still a master, but we were like, oh yeah, this is another angle, and kind of lied to them. What's the deal? No, I don't think we lied to them. I just think we didn't match what our previous master was, mm-hmm. which is what we should have done. But I think it was just kind of like, um, let's push in a little tighter so that then we can have, we because we were like, okay, and then we're going to cut to this scene where you start at this line of dialogue. Oh, okay. Which is, I never want to do that again. And I, like maybe you're finding uh, ways around that. But what I found was that just creates tons of continuity errors. Um, mm-hmm. and if, unless you have like a really good scripty that's on point, which I mean, we didn't really have a scripty that day. We didn't really have a scripty any day. I mean, most of the time it was just Stephen and I trying to cover the script supervisor role while also directing, lighting, cinematography, yeah. Stephen setting sound, everything was being done by us, you know, and so. Um, you definitely want to not, uh, you want to avoid that as much as possible, I think. Yeah. If you're going to edit your own film, you're going to appreciate the scripty or the script supervisor. Cause apparently a scripty's, uh, 
a derogatory term. Yeah, fuck it. Uh, you're going to instantly realize how valuable they are. And it's not even if you're editing, if anyone's editing your film. Like, honestly, if you pay someone to edit your film and you're like, yeah, yeah, man, I did this film. It's good. It's good. You can like it. And then they see the lack of script supervising going on. They might just be like, you know what? Uh, this is too big of a pro. This is too much, too much to take on because it's going to take so much extra work to just match continuity wise. When you're our level, you don't got that kind of money. <laughs> yeah, you don't have that kind of money. So you really need to invest in that script supervisor, script, script supervisor because they are invaluable. And you think you can get around needing them, but that's just simply not the case. Yeah, I would say uh, in in hindsight and for you know all future projects, it's going to be really about not letting anything be resolved in post. Yeah. It, if you're not if you're not getting it on the day, and if you're not liking what you're seeing, it's not gonna get better really in post. You're gonna like I think post should be limited to quick fixes of things like oh maybe a, the mic popped here or something or well, I would maybe also the boom dipped in yeah. something like that. Like those those are the like. That's the things you got to fix. Not like, oh, we'll fix the dialogue and the continuity and the fact that the actors didn't want to do the entire scene. Like, And, you know, I don't blame the actors. It's a long scene, but that whole day was just blocked for that one scene. And not even to say that's what happened. But also, I think we did find a good script supervisor. Josh. Josh. Yeah, Josh. Because um, uh, did we talk about this last time? We haven't talked about this, right? We haven't talked about this. We shot our helped... Assist, we assisted in shooting uh, a, a short, short film. A little short comedy piece. Yeah. Um, which should be coming out soon. Steve and I, you know, we really came in and, and helped uh, amplify and raise the level, raise the bar for, you know, what, you know, the high desert filmmaking scene could be. And, you know, Josh was the writer director and he, uh, we worked, we collaborated really well. And I think we uh, helped to create, uh, an awesome little piece and i hope you guys can enjoy it it's a little comedy skit and i won't uh yeah spoil anything because i think the whole kind of and that's josh that we had on our episode before that's josh imperial that's josh Ampiro. i'm so sorry josh if i said your last we name gotta wrong. look it up i'm gonna edit that what, he says he's gonna edit it <laughs> he says it what's his last name where the fuck's my phone it's um it's Oh man, it's Am Amparo. Amparo. I'm just racist. Can I say that as my excuse? <laughs> but he was a great supervisor, our script supervisor, because uh, I mean, I was doing a lot of the lighting and kind of camera work. I was extremely hungover. Sorry, Josh. And Tom was doing what he always interferes with. Tried to direct. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help it. I'm sorry. <laughs> But man, just Josh's ability to recognize like, oh yeah, you didn't say this word on this line and on this other take, you did this thing. I mean, I was like, Jesus Christ, you're catching all of that. Like I had, my memory is not nearly anywhere of that ability that he possesses. So that was really impressive. It was like, shit, this guy, script supervisor. Absolutely. And also, I mean, just, you know, fundamentally great writer and, you know, fun guy to work with. So. Blessing all around there. Um, to get into our episode, 
Oh yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, buddy. <laughs> Pour that tequila. I mean, I got some Miller Lite to sober me up a bit. Yeah. Just kidding. But um, so to get into our episode, we have quite a few news articles we're going to touch base on a little bit. And um, depending on our pr- our preparation is how long this will take. <laughs> and I don't know if there was a lot of preparation today. I didn't prepperize anything. I know for me, I mean, I've been in a real slump. I've been in a real downslide on just like the emotions and so, and stuff. I just haven't been able to write. Wait, explain this to me. I've just been dealing with there's there's been a lot of just stresses and yeah and car troubles and financial woes and you know all this shit and it's just been piling up and getting in the way of all the uh, creativity, huh? Yeah, and well, well, it's not even it's not even the creativity. It's when I there's a point where like. It's like I can be depressed to a point where it's like good for the writing, but then there's a point where I'm just like, I'm too tired. Like I know what to write, and that's like I think that's what it, it fuels the depression a little bit more. Is I know what I want to write, and I know what scripts I wanted to write for the show and things like that. But then I just like, I'll write like I like I wrote like four pages, and I was like, oh, I I just. I don't have the time to write more and I just felt bad. And I was like, I've this is like, like the third or fourth script I've missed. And it just was like, it just compounds. You Buddy, know? there's no scripts you're missing. You don't have to do a script for this podcast at all. That's not it's good the practice. ending to this podcast. It's good practice. It's fun to do. I think that's a highlight of this podcast that we offer. But in no way, shape or form is that what Twin Shadows podcast is. So don't put that pressure on yourself. It's a treat. Every time it's a treat. And you know what? The biggest treat of all with this podcast is letting people hear your sexy voice and my sexy voice and our accurate, precise, impeccable, undebatable thoughts. That's very that's very compelling, buddy, and I appreciate it. I really do. But you know, it's interesting you do mention that because like, I've been under a lot of stress and just dealing with so much uh, negativity, stress, and anxiety. And yeah, like you, there's a certain amount where it's perfect. I'll say it. When I had my breakup, dude, I was creating so much, man. I was like just a fountain of creativity and just making all of these works and really getting them out there. And it was helping me to just kind of deal with it and process it and make helping me to move forward. But as of late, you know, I'm reaching a point where it's like, man, I can't write worth a damn. And even when I try editing some of my older work, which I think editing is a little easier for me um, because I can, it's less about being creative and just be more analytical and uh, critical. And that's a little easier for me to do. But even that's difficult. And it's just been like such a rut. And that's kind of why I like what I do with the podcast, for instance, because I'm compressing the audio, I'm balancing the audio, I'm EQing the audio. And that's, uh, you know, that's not, there's creativity there without a doubt. And it's very subjective, but also it's like, okay, well, this is just too much loud and quiet lulls, too many dynamics. So let's crunch those down a bit. You know, let's pan the audio left and right. Like I can just kind of, 
I don't know, be a little bit more automated in what I'm doing and still working on our projects and and progressing in that way. And that kind of gives me some forward momentum and and not feel so down when because I mean, I don't know, tell me if this is how you feel like when with creativity, like like when you need to do work that requires creativity and to really push your mind in that sense, and then you don't do it. Because I mean, for me, you just, it's not pushing a button. It like requires a lot to, it, it requires the planets to align in a sense. Like, man, I feel like shit. Like, I, I just feel so rotten about myself and it just puts me in an even worse place, you know? And it's like, dude, you fucking loser. Like, get off your ass and do it. And then when I'm there sitting down, I'm just like, I can't do this. I can't just force it. That's not how this fucking works. And and it can really take me to just like a really negative and kind of self self loathing kind of mindset. But then also you got to remind yourself like, and eh, no one gives a shit. Who cares? We don't have any listeners. No one's expecting a, a script, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, like also reminding yourself like to not be so hard on your hard on yourself because it's not like the world's depending on you. Only a few people are depending on you and you live up to that. Yeah, but I think what bothers me the most is I feel like part of me is just it's it's like a waste. Cause like I was trying to do like voice memos. I I, I downloaded a couple apps to try and do that. And then and because I, I I I had the June I'd just been driving like crazy. I've been driving to Long Beach back and forth a bunch um from work. Um and I was just trying to record some scripts and like just trying to like do a voice recording of it. And it, it man, it's, it's the technology is not really there for how I want it to be. Yeah. And cause I, I had this awesome idea and I, I kind of pinched it to you already as well, where it's, and maybe this is maybe things I, I was listening to uh, people talk about um, meta modernism. This is like, we're in like a, a period of meta modernism where like everything is a meta take on mm. everything else. But I had this idea where it's like a f- mockumentary about two filmmakers that are oh, make- yeah. that are making their second film. And uh, so their first film was called, um, in the script, it, the first film was called... Penis Head? No, it was called... It was called like Destroyer or something like that, like something really <laughs> cheesy. Yeah. Something really cheesy. It was called like the Destroyer. Oh, it's sat- uh, oh, what was it called? Fuck, I have it in my notes, but it had a really cheesy sounding name. And so that they, but they got all this money to make a sec- their second movie, and they they're making their second movie, and it's about a vampire and a ghosts and like all this shit in the in like uh, this mansion, this broken down brothel, and they're the producer is banging one of the actresses. So he's forcing that character to be in, but she's got really bad delivery. So they don't let the vampire have any lines of dialogue. Yeah. And it kind of creates a new kind of character. And then mm-hmm. the idea too was actually to shoot the film that they're making. So that that film is a real film, but then, then there's a mockumentary making of, of that film that's fake. Yeah. Where it has like the sleazy producer that's like casting the sexy girl as the vampire. And it has like all the, like, turmoil and drama of like we made a movie we're so smart listen to us (laughs) all right that kind of thing which i mean could be actually real but then at the end of the day you have kind of like two projects 
And I started writing it and I was just like, you know, I couldn't get it. And then I went back to an old script that I've really wanted to finish. It has another vampire in it too. I don't know. It's been <laughs> on a vampire streak. I guess you just suck, buddy. And it's called, it's called the, uh, let me, uh, let me just give me two seconds. The title is, I always think the title is for this one is really clever. It'll only take me two seconds to find. Um, it's called the, of course it's an alphabetical order <laughs> and not in, uh, oh, so like date the, so, so the will be there. Uh, it's called Jesus Christ. There's so many. Uh, Jesus, where is it? What it's called? The inevitable something, isn't it? Oh, there we go. Yeah, it's called the inevitable cancellation of the Sally Springfield show, and it's a script that I've been writing on and off for a while, mm-hmm. and it's about the Sally Springfield show, which is like a, a public access version of the Jerry sign, uh, Jerry Springfield, or. Very- um, sorry, Springer, sure. Jerry Springer show, and it's like, and the, and the, on the first episode, it's about you know, it's like the Sally Springfield show, and she's just like this super uptight, uh, like host, and she's like, you know, like the lights have got to be perfect on me, and oh, she's yeah. got, she brings her, she brings in her own gaffers and stuff, yeah, and the producer's like, we can't afford these fuckers, you got to get them out of here, and <laughs> yeah. he's always like hitting on her and like trying to have sex with her. The and producer. The producer, With yeah, Sally Springfield. With Sally Springfield. <laughs> and he's like, put the light on her tits. That's the only reason she's here. <laughs> and uh, and she brings on this woman that had an, an affair with a vampire. But the, mm-hmm. guy, but the vampire isn't a real vampire. He's just like pretending to be a vampire. He's actually really like, he's got, uh, he's afraid of blood. <laughs> and uh, and the husband has been draining his blood because he wants to make amends with the wife. Yeah. So he's like, "I'll give you all my blood. I just love you. I, you know, I'll be with you." And he starts yeah. squirting the blood all over, and like Sally Springfield gets drenched in the blood. Yeah. And then the vampire starts starts vomiting on stage because he's afraid <laughs> of the blood. And then and then and 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 you know and like the set starts falling apart and shit like that because it's like a cheap ass public access show. Yeah. And then you know that's the that's the kind of like the whole script. And then it's like that sounds great. Yeah. And it's like and I've been trying to write that for like forever. a feature. No, it's just a little short. Oh, I've dude, actually... you could make that a feature. Have you heard of the movie called Soap Dish? No, I haven't. It's from the '90s. Um, tons of actors. I think Robert Downey Jr.'s in it, and it's basically. Based on soap operas, and oh. it fo- uh, follows uh, um, what's Aunt May from Spider Man, Ellen Burstyn or something no, like that. No, for what Tobey Maguire, oh, Sally Field. Sally Field, yeah, yeah. It follows Sally Field. She's like the lead actress, but you know she's aging out, and it has like Terry Hatcher. Oh, yeah, I think Kevin Klein might be in it. It's really good, but it's based around soap operas, so maybe there might be a disconnect if you never saw like Days of Our Lives or where was a guiding light General family. Hospital. We were um, right. my sister loved General Hospital, so I saw a lot of that. We were a guiding light family. I used to get beat if I messed up the taping. Oh, don't fuck with soap operas, man! <laughs> Do not fuck with soap operas. Mexicans have novelas. You don't fuck with that shit. Yeah, but. Yeah, you should check it out, Soap Dish, and it's kind of like that. It's it's like following around the actors as they're trying to do the soap opera, and it kind of has that feel. So that's why I was like, oh, dude, you could make a feature out of that, like easily. Yeah, actually, I've sent the one of the first drafts of the script to Grace because I always thought Grace would be Sally Springfield. Oh, okay. And she was like, "This is so funny," and I was like, "Do you say that about everything I write, or am I just funny? I don't know." 
Uh, well, she's been in Hollywood for a while, so she probably knows to just say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tom, you're so smart. Speaking of being in Hollywood, should we get to the news, buddy? Oh, yeah. So, speaking of Hollywood, uh, this is a follow-up on the strikes going on, specifically with the WGA. But right now, um, and this is just kind of an update more than a commentary on anything, but SAC could possibly go on strike as early as Saturday of this week, which would be July 1st. And this would completely shut down the industry aside from non-union productions and productions in post, I would assume. And this may also have expedited some of the uh, casting of certain actors, for instance, with James Gunn's Superman legacy film. Yeah. Where he's already casted uh, Superman. I don't know who it is, but uh, Lois uh, Lane, who I believe is Miss Marvel, right? From the yeah. Amazon. Rachel Bronson. Anyway, she's great. In I don't know if you see Mrs. The Maisel. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I've seen the first season. She she's a really good actress and she has a lot of charisma. She's so very good. I could see her as a Lois Lane. I was and like, damn, that's who's Lois Lane. Like, yeah, I like that casting. Rachel I don't know about Superman. Bronizan, yeah. How are you saying her last name? But she's yeah, she's beautiful, charming, great yeah. actor. It's just like she's the full package. Yeah. And the guy is the guy from Pearl. Uh, uh, which I haven't seen Pearl yet. Never, what is that, a show? The X. Remember the movie X? Oh, oh, I know who it is then. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, it's hard to top. Uh, Henry, Cavill Henry Cavill is kind of like, you know what was really depressing was it was like someone was saying like, oh, I, I want to do something better than Henry Cavill's like gritty take. Like Henry Cavill didn't get a choice on what his take was. Like Zack Snyder told yeah. him and wrote the script. And I think Henry Cavill is the perfect Superman and Clark Kent because he just fits the role. Yeah. He's a perfect follow up to Christopher Reeve. Yes. Right? Like James Bond, I don't know if they, there's a perfect follow up to Sean Connery. And Roger Moore's not bad. To Sean Connery. Pierce though? Brosnan. Even Timothy Dalton's not bad. No, I love. I, uh, Pierce Brosnan is my favorite Bond, like what Bond would be. But I mean, like to follow up, how do you follow up uh, Han Solo? How do you follow up Indiana Jones? John McClane, you know? Christopher Reeve set the standard of what Superman was. And I think Henry Cavill's like a perfect follow up to that, right? And this guy, I did see Pearl. He You're was really good. going to shit on my boy Dean Kane. Oh, I love Dean Kane. And I love Terry Hatcher as Lois I love Lane. Terry, you know, every time you say, because you, you mentioned Terry Hatcher earlier for the soap soap dish, yeah. uh, I always think of the, the Seinfeld episode that she was in. Oh. Uh-huh. And because it, uh, it's about her breasts. Uh, and, well, it's uh, soap dish. Guess what it's about? Yeah. So, her character. So Terry Hatcher, in the, sorry for this quick tangent on Seinfeld, uh, but in Seinfeld, there's this, uh, she's at the gym uh-huh. And Elaine, uh, the boys are trying to figure out if her breasts are fake. <laughs> and Elaine is in like the sauna with her and she falls into them and she grabs them and she realizes that they might be fake. So Jerry breaks up with her because he doesn't want to be with someone that's so fake. Oh, my God. I and then Jerry. and then uh, Elaine gets in the, the, the sauna with her again and her towel drops and she's like, no, they're real. And the whole thing is like they're real and they're spectacular. And then Jerry's like trying to get back with her because they're real. 
But like the whole time she's just like, you you broke up with me because you thought my tits were fake. <laughs> oh man, Terry Hatcher is gorgeous. Dude. Yeah, she's she so hot. Jesus, she's gorgeous. I mean, uh, what was that oh, with um, Dean Kane? Yeah, no, uh, Lois was that? and Clark. Oh, dude. I mean, I, I used to watch Lois and Clark all the time. Yeah, my sister loved Lois and Clark because she she had the hots for Dean Kane, but. Um, so the, <laughs> so the strike, the pot, the looming sag strike could have like expedited, expedited that. And also I heard, um, from Grace Randolph for her beyond Hollywood, whatever, you know, who Grace is. Yeah. You hate her. I'm not a fan. I think a lot of people just don't like her voice, but anyways, her voice isn't what bothers me. It's her content. Really? Yeah. That's fair. But she was saying that... Uh, She's, she talks so matter-of-fact. And I'm like, you're... That's, listen to us, dude. But we're right. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> but she was saying that uh, uh, I guess a lot of actors are dropping out of Comic-Con. Because, you know, actors will do Comic-Con to promote their films. Yeah. Jennifer, well, if they're going to go on set or strike... Guess what? No promotion at Comic-Con. Jennifer Lawrence said that she's not accepting any roles until the writer's strike is over. If they I go read, on strike. No, she said that she's going on her, her own strike type of thing. Like, And she is encouraging other actors to join her. So is she talking about how the, her, the fact her film, what was it, Hard Up or whatever? Um, No Hard, hard Feelings. No hard feelings, didn't get any buzz, and no one saw it. So now she's like, I bought Strike. That's why I'm not going to be in any new projects. I mean, she, she's, she's been an interesting one. Like, she's got a real strong ego, but... I like Jennifer Lawrence. I'm a pretty big Jennifer Lawrence fan. I mean, she's, she's a very attractive... I think she's a very good actress, and I do want to see No Hard Feelings, because that does look like... It's... It does look funny to me. I miss I miss like old school, like raunchy comedy. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what this... I know there's like a... A full frontal scene that she has in the movie. Well, uh, she's, she's, you know. Which is kind of like, wow, they're doing like a full frontal comedy, like comedic scene. Like I'm totally down for that because. Asteroid I've, City did it with Scarlett Johansson. Although I heard it was a body double. I don't really care, but. Um, oh, I thought. We've already you don't seen like Scar that. Jo no more? We've seen Scar Joe's full body. What? Full. So then it's not interesting anymore? No, I, I want to see it. Misogynistic. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I want to see it every day, but um, you know, we we. I, all I wanted to say is like, I. Feel, what are you trying to say? You want to see new? I have a problem with like. The, there's like this. Look, uh -huh. we the pendulum swung really hard towards like this prudish puritanical puritanical nature. Yeah, which I'm pretty avidly against. Oh yeah. And so I'm like excited. Like one, this is one of the reasons why I love Margaret uh, Margaret Qualley. Who's that? She's an actress. Um, she was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She's like the one of the main hippies, the oh. one that the dirty feet. Uh, the one who was hitting on Brad Pitt the whole time. Yeah. Oh, okay. She's that. She's in that. She was in uh, a show called The Leftovers, which I'm a big fan of. I've heard of it. Um, and so, and she was in this new movie recently where she plays a dominatrix. Oh. But she's kind of like, I feel like she's kind of embraced like this sensuality, sexuality of just being like a beautiful, well, very talented actress. And I'm like, oh, I forgot that, you know, there were like, there were a lot of these actresses that were like, because I mean, part of film and, and the industry is like sex sells. And I remember... Uh, 
a big being I'm a big fan of those like erotic thrillers of the 90s. Oh yeah. Where yeah. you're talking about I mean in the 80s like Body Heat uh, uh pretty much any movie with um Basic Instinct that's the biggest with, one. With uh Michael Douglas. <laughs> <laughs> Was an erotic thriller. <laughs> Michael Douglas is like the king of erotic thrillers. He was in all of them. I mean, basically, I, I absolutely. I mean, I. If you're a, a familiar single fan white of, female, right? Or, or what's the one with Glenn Close? Yeah, single white female. He was the lead. No, that's not Glenn, That's not Michael Douglas. Single white females. Who's uh, the male? I don't remember who's in that one. Oh fuck. I don't know. But uh, Michael Douglas, I mean, uh, we're I, mean I don't think I ever saw it. So Basic Just Instinct is like the king of erotic thrillers, I think. Yeah. If you're a fan of the show, you know how much I love Paul Verhoeven, how much Steven loves Paul Verhoeven. And uh, he's uh, the writer-director of, of Basic Instinct. And then uh, you have the Glenn Close, uh, uh, Michael Douglas movie. Remember the one with Madonna and William Dafoe? Yes, Body uh, of Instinct, uh, I think it's called, or something like that. But yeah, like there's like in the 90s, there was like an infinite number of these. And the I love softcore porn. Like you as a kid, parents were like, you can't nothing watch can, this. Nothing can, <laughs> nothing can top it. Like when you'd like, you'd get a hold of, get a hold of it or something. When you get a hold of one of those movies, nothing could top it. You know, that's interesting you mentioned this because just on my own, I was thinking this about cinema. Uh, I think I, I probably was high or something. But I was just thinking of the fact that so much of movie, so much of cinema is literally it involves murder or sex. So many films revolve around that or have that in the film to some extent. That's just because it's something's like, getting killed, someone's getting killed, or someone's getting fucked. It's like the most heightened sense of human emotion, right? Like we it's all the extreme of we all fear death and we're all kind of tantalized and uh, like we kind of like admire death and in, into an extent right mm -hmm. like look at uh the silence of the lambs we we should be completely repulsed by hannibal lecter but there's a charming nature to his character yeah. and also just the investigation and like the unraveling of of just completely deranged psychotic humans but then not even that like we can even take it into a smaller degree where it's not even a psychotic person but someone that commits accidental murder or Dude, look know, at just, Marvel films. just death like like there's just a point where we're like children's stories we kind of feast on it it's it's part of our modern day storytelling and it's always been our story i mean look yeah. at look at the um grim fairy tales you know i, yeah. I don't think hans Christian Anderson, right? Those fairy right. tales really feature too much death, but certainly the grim fairy tales. So back to the, speaking of death. Yeah. If the SAG should negotiate and not go on strike with the WGA, then that will leave the WGA very much on its own. Because the DGA reached the Directors Guild of America, I think is what it stands for. Yeah. Probably not. Association. No. Directors Guild, whatever. They reach their negotiation. The Screen Actors Guild. They might reach their, reach their negotiation. Fran Drescher is the president, I believe. Yes. She's going to do what's best for the actors. That doesn't necessarily mean that's uh, in agreement with the WGA. So 
that could really leave the Writers Guild high and dry. And a lot of people have been like, well, you know, and we're for the little guy, of course. And a lot of people have been like, well, you know, what's a, what's cinema without the writers? And that's absolutely correct. Without the writers, you don't have a film. However, have you seen the goddamn films for the past 10 years? Well, I that, mean, might, maybe we do got to fucking kill a few of them. You know I, what I'm saying? Put them out to dry. That leads into our next topic perfectly, actually, because it's about the box office for The Flash. And The Flash is on its third week and has had a devastating release. The film is reported to have cost a budget around $150 million in just marketing yeah. and then $200 million in just making the movie. And I think $150 million just for the uh, legal fees for uh, Ezra Miller. <laughs> and the, <laughs> See, this is why he's got to be a writer. Look at this. <laughs> and the box office is sitting at $216 million. Now, one thing I will say, and I'll ask you this. I haven't seen the film. Have you seen the film? No, I didn't want to see it. But you wanted to see it. I wanted and to we see it. And we talked about this because you're like, I like the flash. And I like, I think Batman and I want to see the movie. And I was I'm like, like, well, and I was like, fuck the flash. I want to see the flash for, I wanted to see the flash for a couple of reasons. I mean, I don't go to the movies that much, but uh, I'd like to go to the movies more, but I don't because I am a weirdo and a loser. But no, you're not. You're just fact, busy. The fact of the matter is, I'm a big fan of the Flash, like Barry Allen, the Flash, you the are. character, and I also, I mean, dude, fucking Michael Keaton. Like, are you telling me Michael Keaton wasn't That's a selling point? That's the only point? reason I want to see, and I still want to see the Flash for Michael Keaton and also Michael Shannon and Supergirl or Superwoman. I don't know what you Supergirl. call her. Supergirl, she looks really hot. But I mean, to me, I was just like, so you're telling me we have Barry Allen doing uh, the multiverse, which. I'm pretty multiversed out at this point. Well, it wasn't done right, ever. It's been done uh, to death at this point. I mean, even Beavis and Butthead did fucking multiverse in their movie. Who'd they meet? They met other versions of Beavis and Butthead. Well, the thing was, the smartest versions of Beavis and Butthead, which were still dumb, <laughs> were, trying, funny. <laughs> were trying to help Beavis and Butthead get laid. Yeah. And in the end, the smart Beavis gets laid because he's the smartest of all the Beavises. Yeah. So it's pretty funny. <laughs> that sounds pretty funny. It's actually great. Yeah. I I was like, oh, you guys did a multiverse in a funny, like mocking satirical way. Like, because it has been so overdone. Uh, but it was just like, yeah, every version of Beavis and Butthead are, are retarded. Or <laughs> sorry, are very dumb. Yeah. Um, but you know, like I wanted to, what I had to th- say about this is. And I, you know, know you have another paragraph here, but <laughs> no, it's just a question, just me asking you questions. But my thing is like, it's not even that I don't think there's superhero fatigue. I don't think that there's big franchise fatigue. It's just these movies fucking suck. Yeah. And what's the point in watching terrible movies? Like we have, people do have a standard. Yeah. People, the problem is, is that. A lot of of us are invested because we love franchises and we love those franchises and we want to support the franchise, the name. And also we kind of there's like it's like almost like we're tagging along like we have to tag along so we don't fall behind in a sense. Yeah. And that's kind of the uh, 
that's kind of the the world that Marvel kind of came in and created and DC is kind of adopting. But Marvel kind of came in and said, look, we're going to make this huge series of films. It's pretty much TV in a movie form. Every episode is just going to keep coming out. And DC was kind of doing this too. But the problem is, is like they all suck. They're not interesting. They're not compelling. DC or both? All of them. Okay, but Marvel still makes a billion. Look, it, uh, Indiana Jones uh, just came out, I think, today. And it's like, who gives a fucking shit? Like, well, it's actually projected to make like 150 million. Well, it's Indiana Jones and it's Harrison Ford. <laughs> I mean, it's. That's quite a bit considering The Flash has literally only made 216 million after yeah, three weeks. It's Phoebe Waller Bridges or whatever, right? Everyone loves that show that she was in. Fleabag, which I've Fleabag. never seen. I watched a couple episodes and I turned it off and was like, I don't. Mm. Yeah, you said it was very uh, misandrist, right? It is, but also it's just like, it, this is a, a problem I have a lot too with um, everything everywhere all at once. Is it? It's kind of a move that wags its finger at the audience, oh. where it's like, we're weird, don't you see? We're weird, get it? And we're like, I don't care. You know what's weird? Demons raping people. That's pretty weird. And I don't want to. I don't want to see that. Yeah. But it's like. If you're not going to go there, like, I feel like people go like, it's like, we want to be weird, but safe weird. Maybe that's a weird, <laughs> and maybe that's no, a. No, you make a good point, because when you said de- demons raping people, I immediately thought Ninja Scroll. Yeah, right. And I when think- I saw that movie for the first time, I was like, holy shit, this is too intense for me. You I me- shouldn't be watching this film. You remember when Tetsuo squishes the chick to death? Yeah. Yeah, yes. And it's like, oh my God. And it's like his body's morphing around her. And she's like, yeah. oh, I can't remember what her name is right now. Uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, it's escaping me. But Akira, right? Akira, yes. What we're uh, about. And so, right. And it's like David Lynch, like the guy that uh, the man in yellow or whatever his name is in the in uh, Blue Velvet, when he's just like standing there with a bullet in his head, like shaking, like, and then there's just like blood just dripping out of his mouth. And like, oh, yeah. Huh? And, and, uh, yeah. and I'm like, these are the things that are weird that are interesting, but like it's not weird to say like I'm weird. Yeah, and that's what I feel like a lot of these films. And like I wish I would have brought this up when Jared was here, because he was like, you yeah, know, I like, remember the fucking guy who won the award and he had his little glasses with the string in the back, and I was like, oh god, you're just wearing that because you're trying to be weird, right? Exactly, and it's like, no, you're not weird. Like we know what weird is. We see it all the time. <laughs> we are weird. <laughs> yeah. That's why we're outcasts. Yeah. You're not an outcast for getting an Oscar, dude. Yeah. And being praised for everything you're doing. Guess what the weird people do? We don't get praised for nothing. <laughs> that's why I we like. We make a movie called Dickhead. That's why I love Trey Parker and Matt Stone, right? They come to the Oscars in dresses high on acid. Like, yes. Why would you guys vote for us? We fucking hate you. <laughs> exactly, right? And then the first celebrity they had, I believe, was George Clooney. And they cast him as a chicken. Yeah. <laughs> It's brilliant. And like, and I, and you know, like and with these movies and these big franchises and it's like the Flash, like DCEU or whatever that it's called, Marvel, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Lucasfilms, whatever, all these franchises. It's like you guys are fucking, you're morally bankrupt. You're not interesting. No one cares. I hope people don't care. But the problem is, is we've invested part of our soul into those franchises. Yeah. Like when you were a kid and you watched Luke look up at the, the fucking 
two moons or whatever on Tatooine. The two suns, the twin suns. And it's like, and you're like, that is not Star Wars. I don't know what it is, but you know, (laughs) speaking of scores, just just to avoid uh, getting uh, copyright. copyright. (laughs) Oh, don't worry. You'll never get copyright struck, buddy. Right. But you're like, oh, I, I, I'm Luke. (laughs) That completely expresses who Luke is, right? Like that whole scene. But then you, you know, and then you watch and you, you keep watching and then 1999 rolls around and it's like, there's a new Star Wars. Yeah. The Phantom. Do, do you remember? Because I remember. Oh, very vividly. When those first commercials came out. And I don't know who showed them, but I I think it might have been E.T., Entertainment Tonight, having like the first snippets of the prequels. And then you saw the little tanks coming through, the Nabu tanks rolling in through the fog or whatever. And I was like, oh my God, he's, he's Star Wars. Did you hear that? Yeah, and you're like, holy shit, it's more Star Wars. And then you saw them. Well, I remember the problem was is I was at the right age when I saw them. Like I remember we used to play midi, like we would do rock paper scissors, but it was like how to measure our midi chlorians. Oh god, no, I was too old for that. I was like, <laughs> fuck this midi chlorian bullshit. And I remember thinking like, because that's when like Knights of the Old Republic was coming out what, too. Yeah, yeah. And it was just like, oh my God, Star Wars, man. Fucking like, you know, rock on, man. Yeah. And then I remember, and then the problem was Attack of the Clones came out. Yeah. And that movie is so fucking bad. I was just like, I've still never seen it since I saw it in theaters. Me either. But I would say, you know, you make a really good point when you said, uh, what was that? Did you say Knights? What? Knights of the Republic. That was much later, wasn't it? I want to say that was probably like 2003, 2004. Yeah. So, because I will say around that time, which, uh, you know, film people might not know, Star Wars had really good video games coming out because you had Empire, Shadows of the Empire, Knights of the Old Republic, which phenomenal. Yeah. Rogue Squadron. I think Rogue Squadron. Uh, There was a first person shooter one. Where you have like you can go join the light or the dark side. God, Battlefront. No, 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 no. It was like a, a kind of like it had a storyline. God damn it! Oh my god, that one was so huge. I don't know, but it was there a first, was a lot of them. it was a first person one. Really good. I played it. I didn't beat it because it was kind of hard, and I I got stuck at a after after a certain point. But there was just a slew of really good. Star Wars video games and then I heard from what I've heard is there was a lot of um just novels and graphic novels and all of that content being produced from Star Wars and then of course you get the films and then you get the sequels which discard all of the canon like you know Knights of the Old Public all of the books it's like dude you have this whole slew is that the right word maybe not you have this whole catalog of material to draw from, but now you're going to just discard it and then create the sequels with Ray and Palpatine reincarnating. And So I have a really interesting story about Star Wars. Yeah. When I was in high school, I used to read a blog in a forum called, it was called The Shadow of the Empire. And it was a guy that, had claimed to have insider knowledge into Lucasfilms. 
And he, this is where I first learned about kyber crystals and oh, uh-huh. and all kinds of stuff like about Palpatine and who Darth Plagueis was and all this. And I distinct, and I remember I would go and I would read Shadow of the Empire all the time, and I'd go in there, and I remember I plagiarized one of his articles about the spes- Russian Spetsnaz uniform, like our army guys. Yeah, and I was like, why did he, this guy write about Spetsnaz? Like. But I remember I had to write a thing about mil- like military history, so I ca- I plagiarized this guy's article. <laughs> Got an A plus. Really? Yeah. Um, but that was back in the day when like people didn't really check the internet for plagiarism and things like that. I was always trying to find a loophole to getting out of schoolwork. So I'm just looking for that game now. So we talked about that a bit. The Flash, you know, it sucks. Um, talking about things that suck. Uh, Alan Arkin passed away today. Oh. He was 89, so I mean, he was pretty old. But, I mean, Alan Arkin has been in so many great films, such as Little Miss Sunshine, Glenn Glary, Glenn Ross, uh, Little, Sh- not in the Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, the Kaminsky Method? The Kaminsky. That, I never which was s- a TV show with yeah. uh, Michael Douglas, speaking of which. Yeah, but... Um, I mean, Alan Arkin, I think of, when I think of Alan Arkin, yeah. I think of uh, um, Edward Scissorhands. He's in Edward Scissorhands? Yeah. Um, no, he's not. Yes, he is. Who is he? He's the, the dad. He is not the dad. Look it up. You goddamn. Look it up. Alan Arkin. He's Bill. Bill's the dad? Michael, Anthony Michael Hall's in it? Yeah, man. He's the dad, dude. Wow. When's the last time you've seen Edward Scissorhands? I've never, I've only seen it a couple times. I really don't like it. You gotta watch it again. It's pretty good. It's really good. It's like, it's probably, I wouldn't say it's Tim Burton's best, but it kind of is. It's not because I think maybe Edward might be his best film. Edward is his best film. It's not even close. It's Ed Wood. Then, it might be Dark Forces, the Star Wars game. So Tim Burton, it goes Ed Wood, maybe Batman. Then I would say no. Uh, yeah, not Batman. Batman's a great Edward Scissorhands. Is that's classic Tim Burton, dude? Oh, it's classic Tim Burton, but it's not his best. It's pretty damn good. I'm a big, big fish fan. Oh, God, you're one of those people. I like Big Fish. Oh, no. I'm a big fan of... Yeah, how many uh, times have you seen it? Albert Finney. Probably like three or four times. I actually own it. Yeah, me too. I own DVD. Uh, Beetlejuice? Beetlejuice is good, but... Yeah, no, Beetlejuice is really good. Beetlejuice is quintessential Tim Burton. Beetlejuice, Edward Scissorhands. What's the other one? There's another one that's like... Batman... No, not Batman. But fair. I mean, oh, Pee-wee. Pee-wee's Playhouse or Pee-wee's Big oh, Adventure. That's, that's a fucking good one, dude. Pee-wee's Big Adventure is pretty good. It's really good. Um No, there's one there's one more I'm missing here. Maybe not. He's done a lot of movies. He has, but a lot of them suck. Cabin Boy? <laughs> How did was he a producer? Because like uh, it's got to be Edward Scissorhands. Because Nightmare on Elm Street's not Tim Burton. He only produced it. Oh, really? 
Henry Selleck is actually the director of of uh, of uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. Nightmare Before the reason Wait, why you said Nightmare on Elm Street. Sorry, Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, okay. I was gonna be like, whoa, he had something to do with that. I didn't know that. No. Yeah, night. Yeah, he always gets credited with Nightmare Before Christmas, but he's just well, he wrote the poem. He wrote the poem, and he he did a lot of work on it, but he didn't have. He's not the director. Um, he didn't have the patience. I actually listened to a, like a, a a long thing about this where he didn't have like the patience to do the stop motion animation for the feature film. And oh. the production of of Nightmare for Christmas was actually kind of a nightmare. You don't be- say because you know, like you know how on how uh, as they say, like on chic or on fleek or whatever the kids say these days. Um, it slaps or whatever. I fucking hate that shit. I hate, I hate, I hate life. Okay. <laughs> I'm an old fuck. I hate everything. Fucking kids say it slaps. <laughs> fuck that shit. I hate it. But seriously, Henry Selleck doesn't get the credit he deserves. Henry Selleck? Yeah. Is that his name? Henry Isn't Selleck. Isn't that the actor? No. Oh. Who What's are you thinking act- of? Salick? Sidney Pollock? No, the Salick. Uh, he was going to be Indiana Jones. Tom, Tom Salick. Anyways, Alan Arkin died. Yeah, it's a bummer. Uh, and this year, is, we've lost a lot of, of uh, yeah. big celebrities, a lot of important celebrities, a lot of, like, not even, I hate, why did I just say that? That's the stupidest thing I ever fucking said. I'm sorry. But we've lost a lot of people this year, um, and it's only halfway through, so who else well dude i i will say alan arkin he's one of my favorite actors dude like hey give me uh two actors you think are gonna two people are gonna die before the end of this year well that's a terrible let's do it um who do you who do harrison ford you think harrison ford gonna die i hope not when harrison ford dies man that's gonna crush me there's like certain celebrities i grew up with who were like heroes of mine you know why were, not, admit, why were none I, of them I, women? Who said they? Who said, <laughs> <laughs> who said they weren't? I'm kidding. Uh, Kathy Bates, you know. Um, but yeah, Harrison Ford's like one of those actors for me. Uh, James Earl Jones is one of those actors for me. Maybe he's gonna die. He's like what 99. Oh, Mal Brooks. Oh, he just yeah. turned uh, 97. Yeah. And you know he was married to Anne Bancroft. Yeah. Damn, man. He Anne was and, and he was Ooh. married to Anne Bancroft like their entire the graduate years. Yeah, for their whole life. What a boss. Um yeah, see this is why it's depressing, man. I oh God, when Mel Brooks goes, James Earl Jones goes, Harrison Ford, Tom Cruise, even for me. I don't think Tom Cruise. I think Tom Cruise no, Tom he's gonna Cruise, be sucking on those like virgin well, blood for a long he time. He's gonna die anytime soon, but I mean he's just one of those actors for me where it's like, damn, like well if that's like if we can go grim Bruce for a minute, Willis. my my number one pick for death for the rest of the year, Alan Alda. I think he's gonna die this that year. That motherfucker's still alive. He's I, alive. I thought he died in Mash. No, he's gonna die Damn, this year. That, yeah, that would be depressing. Alan yeah. Alda. Oh, um, Dick Van Dyke. Dick, that fucker. He ain't gonna never he's ninety nine years old, dude. Or maybe he's a hundred. He's probably like three hundred. Yeah, Dick Van Dyke. That'd be sad. Dick Van Dyke. No one cares. I used to watch yeah, Diagnosis Murder that, a lot. But you grew up with him. It's like Dick Clark. You know, those are like. I never saw anything they were in. I never watched Mary Poppins. I've never, you know, but I don't think I've ever seen Mary Poppins yeah, me either. I've never seen the films they're in. 
but I know that name. And that's like well, I used to watch, my parents grew up with that. I watched a lot of Diagnosis Murder with my grandma. So I watched a lot was of- Was Dick Van Dyke in that? Yeah. And, it, oh, okay. and his son. That was his show? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I never saw it. Uh, I mean, it's about, it's like a crime procedural where he solves crimes. He's a doctor. Here's a more interesting one, because this is always a big shocker. You know, there was like Heath Ledger, Chadwick Boseman. Yeah. Who's the next? Oh, uh, Anton Yelchin. Who's the next surprising death of the youth? Of the youth? Yeah. Like that tragic, like, oh shit, that guy died or that girl died. Amy Winehouse, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm going to- Billie s- Eilish? No. No. No, she's a poser, loser. <laughs> um, she's a slap. She's a slap, exactly. She's a slapper. You know, I've never heard a whole one of her songs. I haven't. They're pretty good. Uh, ooh, you know who's going to die? Who's <laughs> <laughs> a young one? Who's a youth? Tell me. Oh, it's... Uh, damn, dude. It's going to be... Uh, oh, what's his name? Oh. Fuck. Uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson's going to die. Oh, Craven? <laughs> yeah. He's going to die. I got a feeling. <laughs> <laughs> not that I want him to die. I just no, of course like, not. We don't want to. I actually like him a lot. Kick-ass is going, he's going down this year. Well, because I, I like him a lot. I looked him up in Kick-Ass because he looks like such a dork, right? He's such a dorky, perfectly cast dork. And now he's like buffing. No, them. and then I looked at images of him and I was like, what the fuck? That's kick-ass? He's like this super bottle. Tenant? Possibly James Bond. Maybe, yeah. Um, Let's see. Okay, you said Tenant. Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson's gonna die? Yeah, just like Gareth. He wow. loved it. Wow. Yeah. What a shame. Speaking of shames, <laughs> do you think Oppenheimer... Uh, oh, yeah. Do we, we want to talk Lead about into this? this? Yeah, because you read the article, so you got to tell it to me. So Oppenheimer, there is some hesitation for Japan to release Oppenheimer. Well, first, before you go into that, let's go on a tangent. Because you pulled up, you read the headline of the article, and then when you actually read the article, you said it was a, a bit misleading. So can you talk about that because of what you thought it was and then what it actually, the hesitation is? Yeah, so this is a Variety article, and it's talking about... And the critique on journalism. Yeah, so journalism, that's why I I always struggle with finding news articles. Yeah. Because, like, they'll have, like, a nice catchy headline, but then when you start reading the article, you're like, what the fuck? So the article is called Oppenheimer, Christopher Nolan, Theatrical Release, Japan. And then you're like, ooh, it's like nukes japan right yeah but when you start reading the article you realize like toho who's going to probably be the distributor which they distribute you said all of the hollywood films yeah pretty much pretty much all hollywood films that get a wide release in japan are distributed through toho international i believe that's what the name of the company is but they haven't even screened the movie yet but the (laughs) or anything like that and it's like just kind of speculation right (laughs) it's like so we don't even like know but they're it was just talk of that there could be some kind of hesitation because there's some, uh, I mean, there's a it's cultural, kind of, there's like a, I mean, when you really think about nukes, Japan kind of comes next. Of course. Right? It's like nukes, Japan, Godzilla, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, in that order. And 
I mean, just the devastation. I mean, really, the only time nuclear weapons have been used on a human population is in Japan twice. Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And so that, you know, that scar. Fat fat boy? Fat boy, little man, or whatever. Little boy, fat boy. Or is it fat man? Fat boy and little man. Metal Gear Solid had the villain. Fat boy, little boy, little boy, fat boy, whatever, something like that. Big man, little man. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit. Something like that. Yeah. But, I mean, what I think is, like, interesting is, like, do I I mean, I guess it's, I, I fully understand that it could be a very sensitive topic, the development of a nuke, you know. But then I was thinking about it a little more, and... Isn't it just kind of just like a silly clickbaity, clickbaity? Honestly, it's kind of fucking thing. offensive to be like, "Hey, we don't know how they're gonna feel at all because we're kind of making this up." But you know, a bombs in Japan. Yeah, you know, it's like, and even what are the, you talking about? And even in the article, Christopher Nolan is quoted as saying, "Like Oppenheimer is the most important human being in, of all human beings." And I'm like, it's yeah, a bit. Yeah. Dude, hasn't this guy heard of Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I'm kidding. I don't give a shit about Jesus. Oh. But um, I mean, if Jesus can help me out, I care. But he don't help me out. Well, fuck, I mean, there's you. there's evidence to suggest Jesus was a real person. Not to say Jesus was the Messiah or are you putting salt in your water? Yeah. Oh shit, he is drunk. So I don't know. That's I didn't read the article at all, so this is coming from my perspective of trying to understand you in that if it's just like, hey, there's a movie about the A-bomb and then the Japanese, there's going to be contention there. That's That feels a little offensive. You know, let the Japanese people speak and have a stance. But you were suggesting maybe the Japanese government has, has actual hesitation for this film? or Yeah, so... There is some hesitation, but the problem is it's like no one's seen it yet. And so it's going to glorify uh, it to some extent. I would on, su- on subject matter alone, but it's also kind of like it's a movie. And in the article, it brings up uh, Clint Eastwood because he did the flags of our fathers and the yeah. flags over Iwo Jima or whatever it was. That's what it was, right? Flags over Iwo Jima. Or is it Flags of Our Fathers? Flags of Our Fathers and... There's two of them? Oh, there was two of them, there's wasn't the, there? one from the Japanese version. There's like the Japanese side. And then the American side was the fl- flags, flags of Our Fathers. <laughs> oh, no. Sorry. The tequila's getting to them. And the flowers of Iwo Jima? I don't know. But that one, they were talking about how like Japanese... Uh, centric films like it really like they make good money in japan <laughs> no shit oh, you don't say huh <laughs> but like so they were th- thinking like oppenheimer not it might not even make like it might be kind of shunned by the populace because it's a sore subject so it might not make money well uh, uh, that's a very clickbaity article because yeah. it's like well what are you saying what are we talking about here like really what are we talking about i want to know i don't know i I, exactly i wanted to bring it up because i thought the whole thing was a little bit absurd but also it's it's not absurd in the to 
My my issue is with the article. Yes. Like, why even write this article? Because you don't even know what you're talking about. And then it would be interesting post Oppenheimer release in Japan to see how the people receive it. Because I've been to Japan. I've been to Hiroshima. Stephen would Stephen dropped the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to Japan. You dropped the bomb on me. He dropped Fat Baby. Boy. So... You know, and and you see the impact it has had on Japan. And it is very much part of their history and the effects of it. And Japan's like one of the only countries that is adamant about the proliferation of these weapons of mass destruction and taking them out of existence. You know, Japan's always like, you know what, guys? They're really not a good idea. You know, I know Russia, America, you're really starting to stockpile, but you know... It doesn't really work out in anyone's favor. And and when I went to Hiroshima where they have the A-Dome site, is that what it's called? Or the Dome site? It's basically the only building that was standing after the bomb went off at the epicenter. There's only one building that was standing. It was skeleton. And then they have people talking about the, um, the survivors talking about... Uh, well, really not the survivors, but the people who were affected by, by it. And they were pleading for just water because I guess the radiation and the burning, they were just begging for water and they would get the water and that would kill them faster. It's just extremely horrific, extremely terrible. I'm drunk, but I know there's a term, a Japanese word for people who witnessed and were around the, the bomb. They were given a different title and a class. Yeah. like And they were to be honored or something. Kind of, but also kind of shunned. Like they weren't really? supposed to like breed. And there Why? was because of like the radiation, they thought it was like going to contaminate like the genes. Oh, wow. And so a lot of them just were kind of like ousted in society, even though like when no they, you found it was like, I can't remember what it was. I want, fuck, I was just reading about this too. Fuck. Well, I mean, also like the bomb literally implanted people's like outlines onto buildings. Yeah. You know how like, you can't you can't imagine devastation like that, except for the Japanese who went through it. So I mean, I think Nanking might have an idea. <laughs> I kid, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So, I I mean, I don't know what is there to say. Let let it. If the Japanese government wants it to be released, if they feel it should be released in their country, let it be released and then just see what the people think. Really, it's up to the people to decide, right? I mean... Yeah. I think th- I think uh, the reason why I wanted to talk to you about this was mostly just the, like, inefficacy of, of like, bullshit articles. And That's that, what it really is, right? And that, that, that there are topics here, but it's probably not... I mean, if we would read the article, we could have definitely picked it apart. I thought you read the article. I read it, but, like, wait, and I kind of brought it up, but, you know, whatever. It wasn't, like, an in-depth analyzation of the article it's mostly just like in 1945 two bombs were dropped like jesus fucking christ like we get it we know like we got it yeah nagasaki hiroshima you know what the gross part is there's probably like a lot of the younger generation who just doesn't know that in our generation and are we in america younger yeah yeah probably they're pretty goddamn stupid they say slapping things and speaking, lit. speaking of things slapping, do you want to go on to the main topic? Are you ready? I think we should, yeah. 
Okay, so getting into the main topic, I have a quote from Thomas Newman. Do you know who Thomas Newman is? Nope. He wrote the uh, score for Requiem for a Dream. Oh, okay. The great thing about doing movie music is that you find out what you are capable of. Thomas Newman. Let me ask you this then after you read that. What do you think he means by that? So do you think he like watches a movie and and then it it comes to him or what what is he saying in regards to cuz he's a composer? I think there is a lot of strain that comes from being a composer because in a sense you kind of get to watch the movie and then you kind of have to feel the music. And that has to kind of come from within you to like feel, fill in the score. Fill in the blanks. And it's something that I have no idea of. Yeah, I'm not I, musically inclined I'm, at all. I'm, as about, I'm about as music, musically illiterate as like a fucking orangutan at the zoo, right? Like I got no idea. Like I don't know how to write music. I don't understand like progression and pace and what different instruments bring to the table for emotion and all this shit. Yeah. I don't know what the little weird symbols are that they write. I don't know jack shit about fuck. So with that said, I do kind of... With that said, I do want to jump ahead with one of my questions. So... You say how music illiterate you are. Then at what point do you start coming up with the music for the film or for your films? I will say, at least in the in uh, in regards to Dickhead, I had no real score in mind. Actually, when I was really think when I would really think about Dickhead in the early stages, I thought of the movie as almost mostly silent. Oh yeah. Um, with mostly just basic maybe atmospheric if anything not, really? nothing no atmosphere at all and just kind of and it's was supposed to be all about the to me it was supposed to be about the effects of the sound and 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 the effect of of the breathing it was this there was this constant idea in my in our in my head and maybe it was in your head too that the pacing and the breath of the killer was kind of what set the pace and the tone of the film. And that was always something that stood out in my head. That was really strong. There was never really a score in mind or anything like that. And I am seeing the strength and the power of adding, adding music uh, to sure up a lot of the aspects of the scene. So what about you? Did you have any? Well, let me ask you to follow up on that then. So I asked you a question. Okay. Well, what did you have in mind? Or what? The score? Yeah. No. Well, I'm very similar. Quinn, stop. You want to go? You want to go outside? No, you just want love. You poor abused animal. No, I was very much like you with, with dickhead in that I didn't imagine a score at all. Not to say I didn't think there wouldn't be one. It was just, I that is just not within my wheelhouse. Like music does not come to me. For instance, uh, Edgar Wright was talking about when he did Baby Driver. 
he wrote, he pretty much knew the soundtrack he was going to use. And he was use, writing to that soundtrack for the specific scenes. That's why a movie sucks, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually I, like Baby Driver. I'm kidding. Baby Driver is good. But I don't, that just is not in me. And I'm trying to like, to make that a thing where it's like, oh, I, I want this song specifically to be playing at this section of the script or this in this scene and then using that to kind of motivate the writing. However, with Dickhead, that just does not exist for me. And then that's what I wanted to ask you and, you know, the power of, because we don't have a score or anything right now. So, but we are using temp music. So just seeing the power of music, for instance, um, before we do the podcast, we tend to edit together. And we were editing this really difficult scene in our film. Probably the worst, like you said, uh, it was the worst part we did in this entire movie. Uh, the worst part, just fundamentally in all aspects of the film, which is we realized the... Uh, I guess I should just tell everyone, you know, if you listen to this podcast, you're going to get spoilers. You realize that the killer lives right next to where the killer has massacred people. And he's the neighbor, essentially. And that's where he's taken the protagonist because he kidnapped her. And now it's up to the other protagonist to go save her, right? Mario has to save Princess Peach. And it just, the way we filmed it doesn't work. It just doesn't work the way we filmed it because it's like, Hey, oh my God, these people are all dead. Oh my God, look, that's where the other protagonist is. We got to go save her. Ah, save me, please. I'm right here in front of you. And it just does not work. It's hokey. It's bad. It's bad. It's just, and, and we worked on it together. We got really messed up and we, we finessed it, moved things around and we got to a really good place that I think we both liked, but I knew and you knew we were both just really fucked up when we did that. So that's where we kind of started again with this edit to just go through and see where we're at. And in doing that, we didn't necessarily change things up too drastically. It was just a matter of just rearranging the puzzle pieces, essentially. But just by doing small adjustments, I think we really made it work. And then what really you know tied the bow on it was the music we used. Now, granted, it sucks. It's still dog shit. But at least now it's dog shit wrapped up in a present with good wrapping paper and a nice little bow on it. Still shit. But it's not as bad. We made something that was... that literally could ruin the film into something that is noticeably bad, but... You get through it. Doesn't ruin the film. You can get through it. Yeah, because I mean, it it was so bad, it literally ruined the film. It, it, it just took, it would take any audience member so out of the movie that it was like, damn, you guys fucked up. Like, you guys really fucked up with that. And, and part of what we did was just, we kind of did a little magic trick so the audience doesn't really realize what's happening and they're going along and then they're going to catch up and realize like, oh, okay, we're here at this next scene. Like, we don't really know what happened here, but now we're here and we're still following along. 
Yes. And, uh, and what really allows that momentum to happen is the tent music. And so you and I applying the tent music, like having um, Rosemary's theme song for Jennifer's theme song, we're really seeing how impactful music clearly is without a doubt. So with your films going forward, where is score going to fall into this? Are you going to really try to put an effort to understand the music behind this or, or how, how is that going to apply to you moving forward in your other projects? I can say, uh, thankfully I don't have to, I, I'm not going to worry about score too much. Luckily, I think the strength of, oh, if there is any strength in my writing, if it comes from the situation and the characters and the premise, that's, I don't think I rely heavily on music in my thoughts and my ideas. I would like to say that I could do something a little bit better in the next film when it comes to like having a plan for the score, but honestly, I don't, it's just not something I really think about or consider. Um, and I think that does just come from, I just don't have, I'm just not, inclined to really think about the score i'm not really inclined to think about the music i have i like i like to have the references and this is one reason why i really like the tent music is because i think we with tent music you can kind of find the emotion of the scene and like i've always been saying is like it's the music should be what like puts that like the cherry on the top like you should be able to watch it without the music and be okay. And then once the music comes in, like it just settles the pacing, it settles the emotion and it just is there to amplify because really at the end of the day, if I mean, you're not making a straight up musical, you're not making a silent film that's, you know, driven like, you know, we talked about that a lot with um What's that bitch's name? <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> Damien Chazelle? No. Oh. Uh, she talked to God. She's French. She talked to... Oh, Joan, Joan of Arc. Yeah. Oh, for uh, the passion of... Joan of Arc. Oh, yeah. Jesus and, Christ. And we saw two different variations on yeah, the score. We saw, yeah, you saw a different score. I saw a different score. Which we got to... We said we were going to watch the reverse. Yeah. We haven't done that. We, we haven't done to. that yet. That's another thing. Added to the list of things that we need to yeah, do. Yeah, right. Um, but, you know, when I think about... Because, like, I'm a big fan of film scores. I listen to film... Pretty much when I'm listening to music, it's going to be some kind of film score for the most part. No, really? And, like... Because I really just like the progression of the emotion. And most of the time, good film scores, they just create a wonderful atmosphere. The one that always pops, there's two, or there's actually three film scores that I think are like the exception among exceptions for me. Number one, it's going to be uh, Clint Mansell's doing The Fountain. Can you tell me why? Because there's something, it creates like, the music ha creates an atmosphere of like mystery and love and longing. And as you listen to it, you feel that along with the music. And it just creates these images from the film in your head. 
Uh-huh. And number two, I'm going to go with uh, Vangelis doing Blade Runner. Mm. Oh. And it's like, dude, yeah. once that, like, and then I know what's, it's. What's Vangelis? Is that the composer's name or what is that? That's their, their band. That's a band that yeah. did Blade Runner? Yeah. Oh, God, that's so good. Yeah, they're great. Um, they do really well. And then number three, I mean, if you're a fan of our show, we haven't probably talked about it too much on the show, but I don't really <laughs> care what you say, but it's going to be, uh, I think it's Cliff Martinez uh, doing First Man. I think that's his name. I thought that was someone else. Clint Mansell, maybe. Did both. Uh, First Man OST. Let me get it this right. Justin Hurwitz. Yeah, Justin Hurwitz. Justin Hurwitz, sorry. Because he did uh, Babylon. Justin Hurwitz and First Man. And it's like, that's a pretty recent film. So... Uh, you might be thinking, well, how can that be when the bit gave away? It was so recent. <laughs> and then I say, just listen to it. Just yeah. go and listen to it. There's something just so absolutely majestic about that soundtrack. And I mean, even just like the crazy alarm music to where it's like. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, man, it's everything just pulls you. And then. The alarm music just cuts into the like. Oh yeah. yeah, and you're like, oh, I can almost feel like I'm floating. Damn Chazelle, yeah. And then maybe this is like some ultra pretentious bullshit, but goddamn, do you feel it? And those three, those are like probably like one of my top three soundtracks. Are there any that any others that you would recommend for filmmakers to listen to? Uh, there are. Are definitely. I'm gonna go with Tangerine Dream uh, for Sorcerer. If you've never listened to that, that that soundtrack is phenomenal. That movie is phenomenal. Um, The soundtrack greatly amplifies the fucking awesomeness of that film. If you've never seen Sorcerer, 1977 uh, film directed by William Friedkin, I highly recommend you go and watch it. It's fantastic. It's about some men trying to move some dynamite in trucks. Can can you also name some soundtracks too for filmmakers to listen to? Yeah. So a big one. I'm a big fan of John Carpenter. John Carpenter does a lot of the soundtracks for his films. Uh, Ennio Morricone. Ennio Morricone. Morricone. Jesus Christ, I can't say his name. I'm so sorry. Ennio Morricone. Morricone. More Morricone. Uh, right, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Once upon a time in the West, um, the thing, but also John Carpenter did his own version of the thing soundtrack that's used mostly in the movie. And these are just the scores, right? These are like, uh, and I wanted to talk a bit, a bit about soundtracks and films, and I want to talk about to ask Stephen about this because this is where this is like where Wes Anderson has a lot of strength. Quentin Tarantino has a big, a big, uh influence um but yeah so john carpenter right you got halloween you got the fog you got um halloween three and then we got you know inio morcone the thing good and bad the ugly uh let's go philip glass philip glass uh 
And I know Stephen doesn't really like this, but I'm pretty sure. No, actually, it was Thomas Newell, the guy that we quoted Newman or whatever that guy's name is. He did uh, American Beauty, which has a really good soundtrack. Even though the movie's not that great, uh, the soundtrack. The movie's great. Okay, whatever. I'm just an asshole. Whatever, whatever Stephen. It has says. its issues. It definitely does. I mean, it definitely is a movie that uh, has aged appropriately. <laughs> Yes, there you go. That's that's a beautiful way of putting it. Um, but right, like, and I will go. And Thomas Newman, he did, um, he did uh, Requiem for a Dream, which is yeah. a big one. Oh, um, speaking of a, another one, I'm a big fan of is Max Richter, who oh. did the soundtrack for Arrival. He did the soundtrack for Ad Astra. Now, Ad Astra is kind of a it's kind of a wishy washy mix of a movie. I think it's kind of I think it's pretty good. I think it might have been um, nominated for sound, but the score. But the score by Max Richter, I'm a big fan of it. I like for sound. I like to put on a lot of uh, like just cooking videos, and then I'll just put on Ad Astra soundtrack, mm-hmm. and I'll watch cooking videos with that playing, and then you're like, it's like the most epic cooking video of all time. After that. I want to tell you my scores, but let me also ask you this because this is a bit of a tangent. Because you mentioned John Carpenter, yeah. What about like iconic movie uh, scores, songs? Because there's like bow wow wow bow wow wow, and then of course the Halloween. I mean, know? there's one I didn't even mention, and he's you know, it's probably almost. I know it's probably Jaws. A lot of people are gonna say. Why would you mention John Williams? He's so he's such a fucking loser. And it's like, John Williams, give me a break. I don't give a fuck. Jaws. Star Wars, Jaws, Indiana Indiana Jones, Jones, E.T. Superman. Harry Potter, Superman. I heard he did the Olympic theme song. I don't know if that's true. I don't know what the Olympic theme song is. You would recognize it when you hear it. But John Williams, fantastic. But what's some other like iconic like this is that movie? Um, For me, you know, you know one, you know what? Because you did talk about score versus soundtrack, like soundtrack having music with lyrics. An iconic one. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Uh, The Graduate, graduate, Simon and Garfunkel, all of their music soundtrack. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, damn, dude, you want to talk? There's, uh, there's some awesome ones I can think of. Hello, uh, Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> right? Like, okay. Here's to you, Mrs. Mrs. Robinson. Horror films definitely have that, like, iconic. Yeah. Red, I like, mean, Nightmare on Elm Street has has his, you know, uh, Freddy has his good has his theme. Jason. Jason has his Jaws, theme. Jaws. Star Wars. Star Wars. Indiana Jones. Um, what about, you know, I'm thinking of some other ones that uh, that I'm a big fan of uh, that come to mind is um damn you know i just had and i lost it what was it like iconic movie scores um um, i mean you got james bond oh yeah i would say uh godfather oh yeah godfather was that that's not more more right no that's a coppola's it's a family member right that did that yeah but also, uh, you got Bernard Herrmann for Psycho. Oh, classic. Wow. Yeah. How does it go? 
Uh, the Let psych- me see if his drunk ass could recall <laughs> it. I know he knows it's classic, but can he recall it? Yeah. Because I I couldn't I couldn't even recall it. Yeah. Wow, psycho, and that's next on Criterion. Yep. Oh, stay tuned. We're gonna have a special episode planned on how we're gonna do that. That's gonna be a kind of a brand new experience for us and you. Do you do you include okay, this is definitely a tangent. Do you include because you know, like during the 50s, especially, they had the musical. You had all your films that were like musical, singing in the rain, uh, Oklahoma. Um, whatever, fuck, everything was a goddamn musical. Every movie had a musical number. Do you include those? Sure, why not? Then there's a lot right there, right? I don't I mean, know any at, of them, though. But Oh, yes, you do. I'm singing the rain. I've never seen it. Me either, but you know it. I know this the song, yes. Our uh, Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz, yes. Right? I mean, that's full of classical Because I wouldn't music. consider Wizard of Oz like a... A musical, Wizard of Oz, despite is a it having music, I wouldn't consider it a musical though. I think I heard once a musical is when the characters sing and no one else realizes that they're singing. Is that Wizard of Oz? Because I felt like they all knew they were singing. They're just like saying they're like that motherfucking lion is singing. <laughs> <laughs> Why is he singing all of a sudden? No, they're all kind of in and part of the song. Yeah, I thought they just joined in in song. You know, some people like to sing, buddy. That's a musical. So I would say my three, because I do want to, because yeah. there's, there's one film that you, or I just want to list some other films that stood out for me. My number one, though, by far. Robocop. No. Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh, Bram Stoker's is very good. Uh, the composer died maybe six years ago or longer. Um, I think that's literally the greatest. What about like, Robocop? Ba-na-na-na. That's a great one. Yeah. I can't um, even do it. Another one that always stood out to me that I would always listen to, especially when I was younger, in my teenage years, was um, Legends of the Flaw. Le- Flaw. Legends of the Fall. You know, it's so interesting. I had a very interesting dream with Brad Pitt. Uh, don't we all? I was hanging out at Brad Pitt's house, and he was doing uh, nunchuck lessons with like a bunch of Japanese men, which was weird because that's a Chinese uh, uh thing. And they he was drinking like a very a clear glass out of a mason jar. Uh-huh. And one of the Japanese men came over and said, "Do you think he's on the moonshine?" And I, and, <laughs> and, I, and, I, <laughs> and I was walking over to be like, "Hey, Brad, give me a drink of that moonshine." Yeah. And I my alarm went off before I could find out what kind of what he what he was drinking it was a real shame. Uh, this is an honorable mention, even though I listened to it a lot. Though uh, Taxi Driver, the, the Taxi Driver is really taxi good. Driver. Um, yeah, Taxi Driver is phenomenal. Because when you mentioned Blade Runner, like it was like, damn, yeah, Blade Runner. I listened to that a lot. Yeah, I listened to that a lot. I um, played that one out. For me, Bram Stoker's Dracula, though, that's like just pitch perfect. That is, you don't even have to watch the movie. You don't have to read the book. You listen to the score. That's Dracula. Um, yeah, Bram Stoker's what, pretty good. What's another one for me, though? Just a third one to kind of list others. 
god damn it. I've been listening to Pumpkinhead a lot. That's a good soundtrack. Is it? It's pretty good. I listened to it once or twice, but it never really stood out to me. It's not phenomenal or anything, but it's I like it for what it is. I mean, Rosemary's Baby's one. Rosemary's no. Baby is really good. I listen to that one a lot. Because it's like, that doesn't stand out, but then we type it in. And it's like, oh yeah, shit. And then I, I'm just thinking, great. I'm just like, I just think, fuck, I'm such a pretentious cocksucker. But then I'm like, I'm fine being a pretentious cocksucker if it means I get to listen to Rosemary's <laughs> yeah. Baby. Well, even Babylon was great. La La Land, you know, those are great ones. Oh, yeah, of course. Fantastic. I mean, you can't, Damien Seychelles is like a music prodigy. The Thing's a good one. Yeah, I talked about The Thing because there's like. Okay. Yeah, well, John Carpenter, he has so many good ones, right? Yeah, but The Thing is like a weird one because like. That because that's Ineo. They had Ineo do most of the score, but then John Carpenter like kind of threw it away and did his own music. And then Quentin used that in The Hateful Eight because yeah. The Hateful Eight's kind of his version of The Thing. Right, and a big thing about well, you don't know who's and the, the number thing. one track that's used is called the Beast. Um, so if you want to look up Ennio Morricone's The Beast on YouTube, that's uh, from Hateful Eight. It's a fucking phenomenal track, and you're like, why wasn't this used? But then you're like, John Carpenter knows what he's doing. Like the thing is probably one of the greatest horror movies ever made, if not the greatest. I don't know. It's it's certainly up there because I watched it recently. Um, at work, we were uh, updating computers, so we'll put on a movie on Tubi. It's actually on Tubi right now. They have uh, is it? It's the it's is it the thing? The thing. Then what's the prequel called? The um, the thing from another world or whatever. no 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 the remake or the the new one with um the girl from uh, oh Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Yes, it was called the thing. So John Carpenter's is just thing. Yeah. And the one from the 50s is a thing from another world. And then the prequel of thing is the thing. Yeah. Is that how that works? Yeah. Something like That's that. That's kind of weird. Anyways, uh, John Carpenter's The Thing is on Tubi. And, and man, I was just watching again. And that's probably his best film. He's, yeah, that's probably his best film. That's got to be his best film. And and I was thinking, oh yeah, I think I think that's fair. And, and I'm thinking, like, is this a masterpiece? Is this like up there with, you know, Kubrick, Tarkovsky, Godard? Because I guarantee you, I've seen it way more than any of them. And it's kind of a pitch perfect film. It's got literally the greatest practical special effects ever. I just don't know if it, if it is, if it is, it's like literally if their films are tens, then the thing is like nine point nine 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 for infinity. It's a, it's like the thing, right? It's a perfect, uh, clone of what a masterpiece is. I well, I think the difference is between, like the thing and let's say two thousand one, two thousand one. Because, I mean, they're both science fiction. Yes. It's a little easier to compare. So the, the, the main difference is the thing is telling them just a simple, straightforward story. It's just a little more simple then. And while, and I think like when you get more pretentious about it, right? Like it's like you can get into the deeper uh, human aspects of like what the thing is trying to say. 
But like those things in 2001, right? It's just it's just far more epic. And those scales are different. Like the scale of the thing is like it's these fucking like six dudes. Maybe it's there's seven of them. I'm not sure how many there are at total. But it's like they're just hanging out at this outpost yeah. and they're trapped there and they're, you know, there's an alien and they have to figure out who it is. But like the tension, the music, the, the performances, the, the special effects, it's like dude. the same with alien, right? Alien um, is so perfect yeah. because of. Yeah, but alien, I those, could say is up there with 2001. I could say that. Lim- I think, I'd say that with the thing too. I think this is a better comparison because to say the thing in 2001 on the same platform that that I don't know but I could say 2001 Silence of the Lamb like yeah you know like you have 2001 on one end you have the thing on the other end and the middle ground is kind of like Silence of the Lamb which I think is a perfect movie I think Silence of the Lamb is a masterpiece it is without doubt Jonathan Demme really fucking knocked it out of the park with that one man and but it's it's not an epic film right like there's something to epic films there's something to 2001 because it is it has more issues than science of the lamb and the thing because well clarice why do you think he likes him so fat (laughs) right because 2001 has some shit where it's like this is bullshit like fuck fuck off kubrick but then also like blade runner when you do nail it it's kind of like, damn, you fucking knocked it. Because Blade Runner has its issues, but when Blade Runner's like, when Blade Runner's at bat and they're not missing the ball, they're hitting the home run. The problem with the thing I've been because thinking, it's epic. The thing I've been thinking a lot about with Blade Runner, the it's like it's a movie. The more you start to understand and analyze and just really kind of just take the subject matter at face value, you just start to realize like, fuck man, this, this movie just hits at every new level because I, I like to think about it that it's like replicants are people that we just have decided aren't good enough to be people because they weren't like birthed like normal people. Yeah. And it's a perfect analogy for slavery. And, oh, yeah. Um, right? Like, you, you talk, like, that speech that Rugger Hauer gives where he's like. That was ad-libbed. A second, yeah. You know, as close to it. Right. You know, be. he's, the things that he's seen are so wild. And then, like, he has such a short existence that everything he's seen is just going to blink out of existence because he's going to die. Tears in the rain. And because not only that, it's like. Deckard is a fucking replicant himself built to chase and murder his own kind. Yeah. Right. He's an uncle Tom. Yeah. And it's like, fuck man. That's so. And then it's like, he doesn't even really realize it until the end of the film. And then he's just like, well, I guess I'm just gonna. But he also shrugs it off. He's like, man, right. There's, there's no like remorse literally within Deckard. Right. It's just like, yeah, we got to go because uh, I know what happens to yeah, the replicants. They're coming for us, right? Like yeah. Edward James almost, he he's going to kill, he's going to, he's going to Blade Runner us. And that's, you know, that's a cheap and easy way for a masterpiece to be a masterpiece are the epic 
themes, like the epicness of some films. That's why. They, but then you see a film like Tokyo Story, which is epic, but it's also not epic because you know it's about parents and life and family and all, which is it's truly epic to every human. Tokyo Story is the most. It's because it's like it's the most relatable human story of God all time. Damn, that might be the greatest film ever made, man. Tokyo okay. Story is probably one of the greatest films ever made. It's one of the greatest. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't have a great soundtrack. I don't, I don't even, even know, know if it has, has a soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I don't remember a score at all. But Shit, we I, talk I, about a tangent. But I remember those fucking angles. And I remember... And they broke the line in every... Like, every angle is breaking the line. Yeah, and I... There's were, no... I, and I, I distinctly remember there's a scene in the... Well, stick with me, where... She's like waiting at the train station because the fam, like pretty much the kids are like, we don't want to fucking hang out. And the parents yeah. are like, we're going back. And so the daughter in law, because her husband was killed in the war by the yeah, A-bomb, thanks Oppenheimer. Kid. Oh, is that how the son? <laughs> no. Oh, you son of a bitch. But he dies in the, in the war, right? Yeah. And well, he's missing in action. Oh, okay. Because uh, there's like a slight chance that. She has so that's kind of, why she still stays attached to them because yeah, I'm like, not necessarily right. Maybe he could he's be like in back. the Filipino jungle, like just like <laughs> killing people all day. Like who knows? But you know, like she's in attached and like she's so grateful for the support yeah. of of her, of her in laws, and she sends them off on the train, and then it just like kind of like hard cuts to them being like the mob's dead. <laughs> yeah what the fuck what she's like i'm feeling tired right throughout the movie yeah, but no yeah. one's really paying attention to her and then that's like oh my god it's just so brutal like she's been telling you this whole time i'm not okay yeah and you don't even pay attention to her 